Welcome to the Book Club Interview with your host, Scott Hollister, a show that empowers you to discover your best self through a deep understanding and review of books dedicated to self-improvement and business. Welcome to the Book Club interview. My name is Scott Hollister, your host. Today's guest is Brian Burke, who wrote The Hands-Off Investor. Brian, welcome to the show today. How are you doing? Great, Scott. Thanks for having me on. Thank you for being on. I appreciate it very much. So before we get started, you want to tell listeners a little bit about you know, your background story, where you came from, and why you got started in real estate? Oh, yeah. Well, I got started in real estate because I didn't know any better. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it, it, I, was, uh, I was 20 years old and trying to figure out how to make, uh, make money and work for myself. And uh, real estate just seemed like uh, the obvious choice. So I, uh, I started looking around. I managed to find this property that I could get for no money down. Uh, and I, I bought it. And uh, the rest was history. I, I, I was, by that point, I was hooked. Never looked back. So I uh, started flipping houses. This was like 1989. It was like 31 years ago now. And so then I started flipping houses. And all throughout the 90s, I was buying, fixing up, and reselling houses. And in the 2000s, I, I quit my uh, day job, or actually it was a, a night job really, and, uh, and started uh, investing in real estate full time. And I was uh, buying, fixing, and reselling houses. I was buying apartment complexes and duplexes and fourplexes and that kind of stuff. And then, uh, then the market collapsed and uh, the, you know, the rug was pulled out from under everyone in the you know, late you know, 2008, early 2009. And at that point, I knew I had two choices. I could either go crawl under a rock or I could grow like crazy. And uh, I chose to grow my way out of the recession, uh, really expanded the business an incredible amount, started raising money from uh, investors to acquire larger uh, and larger properties and more and more properties. And literally after the recession, I was buying 100 properties a year, 100 homes a year and fixing them up and reselling them, plus buying larger apartment complexes. And here we are now. Uh, half a billion dollars in real estate, 700 single family homes, 3000 apartment units later and still going strong. That's awesome. And I think that's, that's one of your best perspectives, right? Is, is going through mar multiple market cycles, having, you know, different areas of expertise that you've gone through over the years. And I think that comes from the book. And that's what I really appreciate about, you know, learning from someone and, and you know, gaining that knowledge that you've put into a written book. And it, it's just phenomenal. So it, it helps develop, you know, a, a foresight that investors, I think, need most, right? Because we don't have to make mistakes ourselves. You know, we can kind of learn from not to say that you have made mistakes, but, you know. <laughs> oh, I've made plenty. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. <laughs> everybody will. And you know, and it's funny, you know, yeah. you can, you can read someone else's mistakes in a book and think that you're not going to make them, but you'll still make those mistakes. You'll just, you'll, you'll just go, gosh, I knew better. I shouldn't have done that. Uh, you know, and after you've, yeah. after you've uh, made those mistakes and it's cost you money, you'll then you'll never do it again. <laughs> At least that's, <laughs> that's uh, my experience anyway. Yeah, smart. <laughs> but I, I love the book. I mean, the unique view, you know, that it offers, you know, there's countless books in real estate investing, but a book from the investor standpoint, right? To how to educate someone with money that may want to diversify their portfolio with real estate. It's just, it's such a great idea. So how long has it been in the works and had you, you thought about writing in the past and what made you write it now? Well, you know, my wife's been telling me for like, I don't know, 15 years, I should write a book. And, you know, I, I never thought I was experienced enough. And it's like, you know, I've only done 500 deals. That's not enough to write a book yet. And then you start <laughs> seeing like, hey, somebody just did their second deal and wrote a book. Maybe I could do this. And so, uh, you know, I, I'm, I guess I made excuses for long enough. And 
uh, you know, I never really knew what I would write about. I always thought, you know, well, maybe I would write about my story about how I came from nothing and, you know, bought a half a billion dollars worth of real estate. Maybe that would be interesting. And I think, you know, that's been done before, you know? Mm -hmm. So, uh, as I was uh, kind of looking into things, um, Actually, it was uh, it was Brandon Turner uh, from Bigger Pockets. We were we were hanging out one day, and he gave me a suggestion. He says, "You know, you, you should write a book on you know how to become an investor or something like that." And I, so I thought well, that's kind of an interesting idea. So I started researching the idea, and I found nobody had really done this. Uh, you know, there was all kinds of books out there on how to invest in real estate. Um, you know, and there were all kinds of books on how to raise money from other people. Uh, to invest in real estate, but there was no book for that other person that, you know, the, mm. the one that has the money and is being pitched to by a real estate operator saying, I've got this great idea. I'm going to buy this apartment complex, you know, give me some money and I'll invest it. There was no book to teach that person how to know what investment they should make and, you know, what invest, what operator they should invest with. And then, you know, how to gauge, you know, what to expect and how things are going and whether it was the right uh, opportunity or not. There was no book to teach that. So uh, I felt uh, it needed to be written. So I started it about a year and a half ago. I cranked it out in about six or seven months. And um, since then, we were in editing for about another nine or 10 months. And, and here it is. It's, uh, it's just being released now. That's awesome. I love it. Well, I, I, I find it funny that you didn't think you were experienced at 500 deals. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, good, you know, I, I guess, uh, you know, maybe I'm always not giving myself enough credit. I don't know. I, I guess, uh, I guess I probably knew enough to write a book, but you know, I wasn't a writer yeah. and you know, what did mm -hmm. I know? But who knew? Well, it's great. No, the proof's in the pudding, you know, the, the successful deals that you have to back it up. I, I love it. it. It comes through big time. So, um, I, I had this conversation one time, I think I was at a private equity event a couple of years ago for IMN and I met this gentleman who was walking around. He was one of the speakers in the morning and he started talking to him. We struck up a conversation and he, he asked me what I was investing. In. I was like, you know, small single families, multis. And then he's like, Oh, that's a good, that's a good start. He's like, I, my first investment was a three unit and now we're building a 300 unit, you know, ground up construction. So I, it just, it blew my mind, you know, when you can see someone, that can go from just a single family to a massive apartment complex, you know, just, just that step. So what did that, you know, first initial deal look like? And, you know, what's one of your more recent deals and how would you bridge that gap when it comes to education? Yeah. Well, you know, it's funny you say that because when I was uh, 20 years old and bought my first uh, rental property, my first rental house, I was living in an apartment, in an apartment complex. It was a newer apartment complex. It was a few years old. I didn't even own my own house yet. And I remember thinking to myself, like, who owns an apartment complex like this? So I started doing some research. I found out I was owned by just this one guy that lived in the next county over. And, you know, and I thought, you know, this is a, probably a 150 or 200 unit complex. And I thought, you know, that's incredible that like one guy could own a whole apartment complex. You know, it was, it was completely foreign to me. I never thought that something like that would ever be possible in my future for sure. And so, um, you know, years went by and, uh, you know, this is probably about 20 years ago. I had a couple of rental houses and uh, I was selling them. And I thought, you know, I would like to do a 1031 exchange where I could sell these rental houses and buy, you know, something larger, an income property of some sort. But I didn't know anything about how to do that. I didn't know how to underwrite. 
I didn't know how to uh, analyze an income statement or what to expect. So I connected with a, a guy who was a CCIM, a commercial broker, that he had been selling a lot of my house flips for me. And it just, just by coincidence, he was a CCIM. And I said, you know, I'm, I'm thinking about buying apartments, but I don't know anything about it. You know, can you help me? And he's like, yeah, come into the office, sit down. I'll teach you everything you need to know. So I went down there in like two hours. He kind of ran me through this, you know, how to read an income statement and, and all this stuff. And it really kind of was the jump start for me. A number of months later, he had actually maybe even weeks later, he had a listing uh, of a, a 16 unit apartment complex. And he told me about it and I looked at the numbers and I liked it and I bought it. And that was my first, you know, large multifamily. It was a 16 unit building. Uh, it was about 18 years ago. And coincidentally, I actually just sold that like two years ago. I mean, I literally held it forever. And then from there, it was just kind of organic growth, you know, and next thing I knew I was, you know, buying, you know, we bought as much as 500 units at a time. That's awesome. I love that. That the, the breaking down with the connections and education and that's, it's great. That's, that's, that's what we all hope to do, right? To, to grab that book in our hands and help hopefully take us from one step to the next, you know? So what does that first point of contact look like with a potential investor that's looking to invest? You know, why the most important thing I saw in the book was you'd sit down and you'd ask about their goals, objectives, risk tolerance, and priorities. So why is that important for you? Well, it, what's, it, it's very important for us because I want to know that the investor that's investing in an opportunity that we're presenting is the right investor for that opportunity and that, and that that investment is is right for them you know there's there's nothing worse than having the wrong investor in the right deal you know if you have somebody that says you know hey my my goals are i want short-term growth you know i want to double my money i don't want to tie it up longer than 18 months you know, and then you've got an apartment complex you're going to hold for five years and you're going to 1.5x the money over five years. You know, you, they're not the right investor for that deal. And if you put them in, you know, they're going to be wanting their money back or they're going to not be happy with the performance, you know, and that kind of stuff. So we want to make sure that we're matching the right investor to the right opportunity and vice versa. So knowing someone's goals and objectives is critical because, you know, if somebody is uh, retired and they're using the income to live off of, you wouldn't want them investing in a develop, ground up development deal that has no income, right? So it's mm. just about matching uh, opportunities with investors and making sure you have the right, you know, the right investors in your deals. Oh, that's great. Now, in terms of what I think the most important thing is, you know, character and in page 52 in the book, I think is the most important book, you know, page in the whole book. I love it. You know, it's how you put evaluating sponsors before even talking about real estate. And, you know, I'm, I'm a firm believer in investing in someone's character before even looking at the real estate. So, and you said it's hard to determine someone's character, but you said the best way is to ask about a deal gone bad. So the worst deal that didn't meet projections. So would you mind sharing yours or any other tips? to evaluate? Yeah, you know, it's, it's, uh, it, it is a very important point. If you're a passive investor that's going to invest in a real, it's thinking about investing in a real estate opportunity, you know, the, the first thing you want to know, or the first thing you want to uh, search for is a good partner to invest with. You know, that people don't invest in deals, they invest in people. And, you know, that's a, a point that I drive home to real estate sponsors all the time when people say, oh, I've got this deal, how do I go raise money? And it's like, you don't, you know. The first thing you have to do is, you know, you've got to establish a relationship with people who 
might be interested in funding you. And so for the opposite, from the opposite side of the table, if you're a passive investor, the first thing you want to do is you want to find good operators to invest with. Because if you find good operators, they're going to bring you good deals. And you don't have to worry about, you know, sorting out deals as much if you found a really good operator. So it's really important to start there. And, and you're absolutely right. You know, that point I made about character, nothing is more important uh, in your investment partner than their, their moral character. I mean, if they're a thief or a crook, I don't care how good the real estate deal is, it's not going to work out well for you. And so, you know, one of the things you're trying to ascertain is, you know, what, what moral character do they have or, you know, what, what sets them apart from other people and, you know, things, uh, you know, are always hunky dory when they're going right. You know, when things are going right, nobody's true colors are coming out, but boy, when things go wrong, you really see what a person is made of. So I, you know, I encourage people to ask about, uh, about the worst deal and what did that sponsor do to, uh, you know, to, to get through to the other side? Did they just throw their hands up and give up and walk away or did they somehow step up to the plate and go above and beyond to go that extra mile to make sure that the investment turned out to be as successful as it could be. You know, our, our story, you know, we tell this all the time when we talk to uh, new investors, uh, you know, one of the first things we tell, tell them is the story of, of our worst deal, uh, because it's, it's really important for people to know, uh, you know, what we did. I mean, we had a property that we bought right before the economic collapse of 08, literally like a few, a few months before, and, you know, I had bought it for about half of what the last guy paid for it. So I thought it was a great deal and my timing was excellent. And, you know, the real estate market had already collapsed, but the greater economy hadn't collapsed yet. So we, we bought it. I started uh, uh, renovating units and raising rents and increasing occupancy. And I got it from like 80% occupied to about 99% occupied. I got rents up like $100, $150 on new leases and everything was going perfectly for like a week. And then right after that is when all hell broke loose. The economy totally went into a tailspin. People were losing jobs left and right. And, you know, I used to joke that, you know, half of our units were empty and the other half weren't paying. <laughs> and, and that's kind of about how bad it was. And, you know, the way that we got through it is I, I literally uh, took money out of my own pocket to the tune of about $15,000 a month to service the debt on that property for three and a half years while we waited for the economy to come back. And, and, you know, it was enormously painful for me, but there was no way I was going to have a loan default. There was no way I was going to have my investors lose money. I had never lost investor money uh, at that time. I wasn't about to start then. And here I am 30 years in and still haven't lost any investor money. Uh, and, you know, that, that is, that's the way you do it is sometimes you have to go above and beyond and, and you want to know mm -hmm. the sponsor you're investing with, did they ever go above and beyond when things weren't going well? That'll tell you a lot about their character. Well, that's amazing. Yeah, that's firm believer. And, and I think one of the hardest things is, and you hear it all the time, you know, buying a single family home and then you bought a hundred unit complex, right? And, and I'm sure you're, you're, you're getting those questions a lot more frequently in the last five years or so. So what's your advice to that investor, you know, before they even start raising capital and, do you recommend that they do deals by themselves hundred percent with their own, you know, money before they go trying to risk someone else's, you know, livelihood? Yeah. I think you've, I think you have to do your education on your own dime. Uh, you know, and so somebody who says, Oh, I, I did one single family house flip. Now I'm going to go buy a hundred units. I'm going to do it all with other people's money. 
basically what you're saying is you're, you're asking someone else to finance your education. Now, when was the last time that you went to somebody and said, hey, you know, I'm thinking of going to Harvard. Would you give me the money to go go to Harvard? Uh, you know, and if I get a really good job after I get out of Harvard, I'll pay you back. If I fail and I don't even get a degree, well, you know, then, you know, your, your money's lost. How many people do you think are going to step up and write that check? Yeah, not too many. <laughs> oh, that's good. That's a good point. I like that one a lot. <laughs> um, well, I, the book is, you know, broken up into five sections. So we have, you know, investing in syndications, evaluating sponsors, evaluating the real estate, evaluating offers and structures and the investing process. So what do you think is the most important step for a passive investor? If, you know, if we've, we've gotten through evaluating someone, we, we've built up trust, we understand, you know, syndications, even though we might not have the time to become an expert, um, you know, what comes across the desk as an investor when it comes to evaluating the offer and the structure of, you know, a private placement? It's, it's all about the assumptions that the sponsor is using. So if, you know, if you, uh, you, you've interviewed a sponsor, you find somebody you like, uh, they send you an offering and say, you know, here's our next deal you can invest in. Uh, you know, what you want to do is you want to look at the offering package to see how complete is it? Do they have, do they have complete financial exhibits that show me the dollars and where the dollars are going all the way from the point where the, uh, where the tenant makes their rent payment all the way down as it filters through expenses and debt payments uh, and, and then to the investor payment? Or are there gaps where, you know, we see that money came in and they see the distributions that they're promising me, but how do the two numbers connect? If you can't follow the dollars from beginning to end, then, then that's a problem. The next thing to look for is the assumptions that they're making. And, and this is enormously important. People, the biggest mistake I think that a lot of passive investors make is they, they look at a, a number of potential investment alternatives. Let's say they've got five different uh, multifamily investment opportunities presented to them by five different sponsors. The, the mistake that people will make is they'll look at all five and they'll go, ah, this is the one I'm going to invest in because it has the highest IRR. Uh, or it has the highest cash on cash return, or it has the highest equity multiple. And so therefore, I'm going to make the most money with that one than I will out of these five. That's the biggest mistake you can make because really what it all comes down to is the assumptions that the sponsor is using. I can take any piece of real estate and I can show you any rate of return you want by manipulating the assumptions. I can change forecasted vacancy factors. I can change forecasted bad debt collections, I can change post-renovated rents, I can change rent growth assumptions, I can change exit cap rate assumptions. There's a number of different levers I can pull on to manipulate all performance indicators. People will say, oh, IRR, you can manipulate IRR. Well, you can also manipulate cash on cash, you can also manipulate equity multiple. All investment performance indicators are, are fully manipulatable. Is that a word? I gotta, I'm going to invent a new word. If I'm a writer, I can do that now. Uh, you can manipulate any, any investment performance indicator. And the way you manipulate is with assumptions. So what you have to look at is, you know, what are they assuming in vacancy factors and rent growth and, you know, post-renovated rents and year one income and exit cap rate and loan interest rate, loan term, all of those different things. And, and one of the things I spend a lot of time in the book doing, and you'll notice that probably the thickest section in the book is evaluating real estate. And that's why it's so that you can get a understanding of the various assumptions and how you should be viewing those assumptions 
to determine whether they're reasonable or not. Mm. Start creating a little BS meter as an investor. I like it. So what are some um, interesting things that you've seen as you're purchasing a property that, you know, a seller might try to kind of get past you? Well, as an operator, the things that I see that sellers will try the hardest to hide is going to be things like um, collect, you know, bad debt collections. That's a big one. Uh, you'll mm -hmm. find that instead of writing off bad debt, they stack it up in accounts receivable on the balance sheet to make it appear as though they're collecting more money than they are. That's probably the big one. The other one is, uh, you know, the delinquencies. Uh, you know, how many of the residents are delinquent or, or 30, 30 plus days late. Um, they tend to try to hide that. Uh, and then the other thing, and it's kind of along the same line, and this is a little bit difficult to find out. You don't usually learn this until you're in due diligence is, you know, what's the history of the residents that are in place at the property? You know, do half the people there have three plus evictions on their record? Um, or is everybody really clean and, you know, good credit, solid incomes, uh, and that sort of thing. So that's, uh, it's really difficult to, uh, to learn that early on in the process. And it's really easy to hide that stuff. Mm. Yeah. You have some great charts in the book as well is, is coming across like the T3, the T12, and then the broker's portfolio. And you know, what's, what's the thing that's glaringly obvious. I love that. That was a good one. Um, so I want to talk about, I think one of the hardest things for me personally to understand in the beginning and in the CCM course, I'm halfway through and that, that was probably one of the best educational sources, you know, besides meeting people like you and, and reading books, but the absolute hardest was to determine the exit cap rate. And for some reason, I can never wrap my head around this, you know, gross income, vacancy, expense, CapEx, like that all makes sense. But a cap rate five to 10 years from now, just absolute guess in my mind. Yeah, and you'll notice in the book, we talk a lot about uh, exit cap rate assumption, and, and it is a little bit art and a little bit science. And so for the passive investor, you know, your job is to determine whether or not the assumption that the sponsor is making is reasonable. Well, I'll say this. First, your job is to see if the sponsor is even telling you what their assumption is. I mean, so often you'll get a, a, an offering to invest in and you have no idea how they're uh, guessing what their exit price is going to be three to five years from now. Uh, and they're not sharing that information with you or it's not just, it's not right there in the offering material. So first, are they even telling you? Second, if they are telling you is what they're telling you reasonable and does it make sense? And, you know, for most people, they would go, well, how would I know if it's reasonable or not? You know, well, how do I know what a cap rate should be five years from now? And, uh, you know, admittedly, it is, it is very much art and very much science, but, you know, we have a, a very specific way that we look at exit cap rate assumptions. And the, what, what I do is I look at what are properties selling for today? What cap rates are today's trades taking place? Uh, and you can tell that usually by, you know, what cap rate is this property selling for? And, you know, if, if there's 20 offers on a property and five of the offers are all within $100,000 of each other on a $20 million deal, you can be pretty sure that the market price is right around that, right around that price point. Mm -hmm. What's that cap rate? That's telling you a pretty good indicator of what the cap rate is for this property as it sits today. Then the next thing, so that's your starting point, right? So everything mm -hmm. is like a building block. So the next thing you're going to look at is you're going to look at what's the overall market and economy and what are the prospects for the future? 
And, you know, I would have told you, you know, a couple of months ago, I would have said, well, you know, things are going about as good as they can be. Rent growth is still pretty robust. Um, you know, the vacancies are low and projected to remain so. Uh, so, you know, the market's really pretty strong, but, you know, there's going to be a downturn at some point in the future. And, you know, interest rates are going to be higher. That means borrowing costs are going to be higher and maybe things don't go as perfectly five years from now. So I'm gonna assume that my exit cap rate is gonna be higher than the cap rate that something's selling for today. Mm. Well, you know, as we're recording this, we're in the midst of the COVID-19 pandemic. And, you know, now cap rates are gonna adjust upward as a result of that because assumptions are going to change as far as future rent growth and occupancy levels and collections and so on. So now you might argue, you know, five years from now, perhaps things will be better than they are today and maybe cap rates stay level or even compress if they decompress during this pandemic. So, you know, you just have to look at whether you think real estate will be more or less desirable five years from now than it is today. And that's going to tell you which direction you're going to consider moving the cap rate. Mm. So, so that's, one of the big reasons we're going for a strong, well-diverse economic, you know, center. And that's why you're picking, you know, some of the best cities to invest in with the positive job growth that, you know, well-diversified. Um, what do you look at in terms of a history of that economic standpoint, you know, for that city? So let's say, you know, Los Angeles, how far would you go back to, you know, try to determine like a real estate cycle or any common themes that you can see? Well, first of all, I can't find any excuse to invest in California. So let me pick a different market. <laughs> Sorry. <Yep. laughs> uh, you know, we could say, you know, look at like Phoenix, for example, or, uh, or Tampa or Orlando, Florida, or Atlanta, Georgia, uh, Charlotte, North Carolina. There's a number of cities in the United States where people are moving to. And one of the things we talk about in the, in the book a lot is the, the big drivers for multifamily performance are, there's three. It's income growth, job growth, and population growth. Those are the three drivers of multifamily fundamentals. So if you look for cities and metros and states and, or regions or even neighborhoods where you have an increasing population, you have wage growth and you have job growth, you're gonna have a good foundation for multifamily performance from a fundamental standpoint. So we're looking for markets that possess those characteristics and, and do so uh, you know, repeatedly over time. So each year you're finding them to be in the leaders. And it's funny when you look at a variety of different indexes of cities with the highest job growth or cities with the highest population in migration, it's almost always year to year the same suspects. You know, it's, it's always like, you know, for the last five years, it's been the major Texas metros, Phoenix, Atlanta, Orlando, Tampa, Charlotte. It's been those, uh, those markets have historically been the strongest and, and they continue to remain to be so. And you'd expect they would continue in the future. And every once in a while, you know, one market will drop off and a new one will pop on. So those are the things that we're uh, placing the most focus on. Amazing. Now, how important is sponsor communication during that investment hold period? And, and do you like to send out, you know, monthly newsletter, any personal calls, um, you know, good or bad? 
Yeah, investor communication is really important. And one of the things that we talk about, I talk about a lot in the book is, uh, is reporting and, and what you should expect to see in your reports. And, you know, there's, uh, there's, there's quality and there's quantity. And mm. there's a bit of a balance because, you know, the more often you communicate with investors, probably the lower quality each of those communications are because it takes a lot of time to put together a real high quality report. So frequency of communication while good, you know, it, it may not be as in depth. Uh, in more infrequent communication, you know, maybe is more in depth, but isn't done as often. So there's trade-offs actually to both, to both sides. I like to look at it as a balance and, you know, describing what we do is, you know, we do a quarterly report, which is really in depth where we go into detail about the, what's going on at the asset from a performance level. We make comparisons to actual performance versus forecasted performance. Uh, we include a full set of financial exhibits. We talk about anything that's going on, good, bad, ugly, or otherwise, uh, you know, and we just deliver the news as, as the news is, you know, we don't try to sugarcoat it. We just, this is what's going on. So if, you know, in between there's a, a particular reason to communicate with people, then we absolutely do so. And we're finding that need, you know, at times like this during the COVID-19 pandemic, for example, people are curious, you know, what is our plan? You know, what are you going to do? How are you going to uh, safeguard collections and maximize collections and that sort of thing? So, you know, very early on, you know, we sent out a series of emails to investors saying, you know, this is what we're doing at a property level from a physical standpoint to keep people safe. And then followed up by about a week later with, you know, this is the things that we're doing to, you know, ensure the best performance. Uh, and then, you know, once we have some, you know, viable data, we're going to share that with people to say, this is the result of all that hard work. And this is what the performance is looking like and that sort of stuff. So, you know, we've had several fires. So, you know, if a building burns down, you know, we'll send out an email, Hey, you know, this building burned down. So, you know, I'd rather you get an email from me than watch it on the news. So, you know, it's a communication is important when there's news to communicate you know, giving a weekly update just for the sake of giving one to me is kind of a waste of people's time and, and they'll just get bored of listening to you. So I think uh, having just, uh, there's a just right balance that you can strike. That's great. Great tip. Now, I appreciate your time very much, Brian. Before we wrap things up, what's some of the best real estate advice you've ever received? Oh man, best real estate advice I've ever received. Uh, probably that it is more difficult to get out of a bad deal than it is to get into a good deal. Hmm. I think that's probably the best one. That will save you a lot of heartache if you follow it. <laughs> that's deep. I like it. <laughs> awesome. And before we wrap things up, um, Ryan, what's the best place to find out more about you, um, more about your business and also where to purchase the book from? Yeah. So, uh, you know, you can find me a couple of ways. Uh, our company website is uh, praxcap.com. Our company is Praxis Capital. The website is praxcap.com. Uh, I'm also pretty active on the biggerpockets.com forums and write for their, uh, for the blog. So you can find me hanging out around there answering questions. Uh, the book is available at biggerpockets.com forward slash syndication book. And uh, it's, uh, if you buy it through biggerpockets.com, there's bonus content that you get access to. There's a bonus chapter. There's a 
list of, uh, I think it's 70 questions to ask an investment sponsor. Uh, there's two interviews uh, that I think are uh, passive investors will find very valuable um, with, uh, with other passive investors. And, uh, and then you also uh, get the book. So that's, uh, that's one way. It's also available on Amazon and bookstores starting May 5th. Right. Yeah. No, that, that bonus material is awesome. That's well worth the investment. So I appreciate it. Thank you very much, Brian, for your time. And glad to have you on. We touched a lot of great topics. Thanks for having me on, Scott. I appreciate it. Thanks so much for listening to this show of the Book Club interview with your host, Scott Hollister. If you enjoyed today's episode, please leave a review and subscribe. And we'll catch you next time on the Book Club interview.